Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? of a disintegrated solar system. At this moment, the remainder of our fleet is circling your globe. What do you want with me? Arrange for your world leaders to confer with us in the city of Washington. They set up an electronic screen. The artillery doesn't penetrate. Never before has the screen reached such heights of excitement. Breathtaking spectacle. Hair-raising terror. See the saucer man's high-frequency disintegrator. See flying saucers travel thousands of miles in seconds. See great cities leveled by flying saucer monsters. Ross, look. The same kind of thing that's watched us since the beginning of the project. People of Earth, attention. People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. They're coming down to take over. They made that clear to us in the saucer. To the best of our knowledge, my wife and I are the only ones left alive. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. This is episode number 56, where we'll be talking about the great sci fi movie Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I'm your host, Jimbo, and once again, I'm joined by my two stooges. Terrence and Kyle and Kyle, we've Kyle, done this many times. You've been a great addition to the team. Can I just say you've done outstanding it work? Feels so like far. I've been here so long, and yet still <laughs> so new. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it's been a great asset to the team. So um, we're going to be talking about this sci-fi movie. Uh, it may not be for everybody, but I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. So Terrence, take it away. All right, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Release date: July nineteen fifty-six. Uh, its box office, what it made in the box office, was $1.25 million, uh, which equates to about $12 million today. Um, unfortunately, couldn't find the budget, so there's really nothing to compare to to say if they made their money back or not. But I do know it was not in the top 20 of the box office. The box office back in 1956, uh, the top five were, number one, the Ten Commandments, making 85 k uh, We have two, Around the World in 80 Days, 42 k Three. Two of them? There's two different ones? 
Around the world, maybe. Oh, number two. I think yeah, number two. There was two. Two, <laughs> around, the around, the around the world in two days. Wait a minute. Around the world in 160 days. Okay. Uh, yeah. Number three in the box office, we have Giant, which made 30K. And then we have uh, number four, uh, The King and I, making 21K. So there's Good your top move. four. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it didn't even make the top 20 for box office. Uh, so who knows if they made their money back or not? Sometimes uh, the good movies don't make the good money, you know. It's cool classic, like Iron probably. Giant, things like classic movies. Exactly, exactly. Like, not success, but they go in the long run. We got a runtime of eighty-four minutes. This was directed by Fred F. Sears, uh, who also directed the kid from. Uh, I can't read my own writing. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interpretive art, your handwriting. Ah, the kid from Broken Gun. Um, and then Bonanza Town. I'm not familiar with either of those, <laughs> Bonanza uh, Town. but I did I possibly sound familiar. <laughs> is, it, is it a movie I'm familiar with purely because that is an amazing title? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this writing credits goes to Bernard Gordon, uh, who also helped write Horror Express and The Law versus Billy the Kid. Uh, George Worthing Yates, who also helped write the screenplay. Um, he did writing for uh, Frankenstein, 1970, the one with Boris Karloff. Uh, and also Lone Ranger. That's not the Frankenstein that we covered. because That's not like the Frankenstein that. we covered, covered, but it or, is another one that Boris Okay, Karloff I was going to say, because that was uh, like for, 19, yeah, that was uh, way before that. B- before 70s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lone Ranger is kind of like maybe the original superhero film in a lot of ways. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, then we have uh, Kurt Sinomach. Sim- that's <laughs> right on time, buddy. That was right perfect job. You have the tongue of the alien. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the face you have, you have to slow down the frequency, and when you slow it down, it sounds right. Anyway, right. Um, also helping writing the screenplay. Uh, he also helped write uh, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman and Son of Dracula. Great movie, man. Great movie. Uh, so a lot of strong writers on here that have covered, you know... Um, Shows adjacent to a lot of the shows we've covered. Long, detailed careers that set the bedrock of the whole industry in a lot of ways. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, everything we see now kind of relates to them a little bit. Uh, Donald E. Kehoe. So he supported this movie in, uh, in a very interesting way. So Major Donald E. Kehoe, uh, he was a major um, in the U.S. military. And he actually had uh, claimed that he saw flying saucers while he was in the service. And so this actually is what inspired the book, uh, Earth versus the Flying Flying Saucer, Earth Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and um, subsequently the movie adapted from the book. So, so he kind of spurred this whole thing. So Terrence, when you were in the service, did you ever see any flying saucers? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you did have a paranormal experience. I did, which I believe I mentioned in our Halloween series. Did you? Last year, I don't remember. If not, we'll just say it. It's been a long, it's been it's a, been a 84 long years. 84 years. In that singular moment, somehow. Very alien. Very normal. Uh, so, cinematography was done by Fred Jackman Jr. I couldn't find anything else he's done. Um, so, this might have been the only film he's uh, helped cinematographer for. Uh, and this was edited by Danny B. Landers, who helped uh, also edit Bonanza and Tarzan, the 19, uh, 1966 Tarzan. Original. OG. So uh, this is a black and white movie. So we're back to some of the old black and whites because it's been a while since. But uh, we watched the colorized version. We did watch the colorized version. Um, the restored and colorized, you know, scene of vision they never saw. You know. It looks really good. It does. Yeah. Picture holds up, cinematography holds up, and the colorized is a excellent conversion of the exactly. And the, and the effects were really done well too. Yes. Um, this was distributed by Columbia Pictures. And finally, my favorite part, the awards, which there is only one. So, <laughs> motion pictures, hey, sound editors, exactly, USA 1957. They won the Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing Feature Film. And that's actually one of the things they needed to nail for this particular movie because a lot of uh, the plot points have to do with sound. Um, well, speaking of that, me and Kyle were eating breakfast this morning and... <laughs> He said that he was watching it as he was driving, which we don't recommend, but... Don't watch movies and drive kids. But he said that, you know, uh, in the movie, you know, where the scene where the flying saucer comes up behind him in the car at the very beginning. Yeah. He said just the boom, 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 you know, the noise. He said it was going back and forth through his speakers in his car or nice. Yeah, the directional audio worked perfectly. The UFO literally felt like it came behind me and went over my head. And it was a really <laughs> surreal experience that actually gave me goosebumps. Very impressed by the film. 
<laughs> Quick little snippet on that scene. I found it weird that like when the flying saucer comes in front of the car, that their instant guttural reaction wouldn't be, let's slam the brakes. No, they just kept driving. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, there's a flying saucer, but hey. I think we'll get into that a little too. bit. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. I, yeah, I believe we'll get a little bit around. There's a lot of kind of strange human reactions to a lot of the UFO dilemma, <laughs> which um, kind of speaks like, what was the world like before this movie started versus what it is after? Right. <laughs> uh, did you have a synopsis for this? Yes, the synopsis. Aliens try to contact a scientist in order to enslave the people of Earth. Happens to the best of them. All right, Kyle, you want to go ahead and take away the cast? Yeah, absolutely. The cast is an all-star thing going on. First up, we got Hugh Marlowe as Dr. Russell A. Marvin, also starred in The Day the Earth is Still as Tom Stevens. Then we got Joanne Taylor as Carol Marvin, uh, who also starred in 20 Million Miles to Earth as Marissa Leonardo. And we got Donald Curtis as Major Huglin, who also starred in Ten Commanders as... Ten Commandments, bud. Ten Commandments. <laughs> hey, we got a new Terrence on this. Uh, you know, Ten Commanders, Ten Commandments, Tomato, Tomato, the 1956. <laughs> he was in that movie. Uh, and then we got... <laughs> Next up, what a name I'll mispronounce is uh, Morris Angam as Brigadier General John Hanley of the U.S. Army. Next up, we got John Zaramba uh, as Professor Cantor, who also happened to star in 20 Million Miles to Earth as a Dr. Judson. And then we got Thomas Brown Henry as Vice Admiral Enright, who also starred as Major General um, McIntosh in the 20 Million Miles to Earth. They got a lot of people from that movie. Yes, a lot of like kind of the reused cast. Definitely just like, you know, who's our sci-fi group in the 1950s? We're going to grab this grab bag of actors and just say like, hey, we got y'all. Right. <laughs> you know, from one side to another, like, but oh, I, another alien movie. But I wonder, is that because they were under contract? Remember how they used to contract people per... That's true. Film I don't company. know if um, I don't know if that movie was uh, produced by Columbia Pictures, but if it was, that probably contractual right. duties. Mm-hmm. That's usually how it goes. You know, you're kind of like you're an actor. You're kind of like attached to that studio for however many decades or years. Or but sometimes they would loan you out to another studio so you could, they could get a, another actor or actress loaned to them from another studio yeah. too. Politics were back then, or even weirder now. <laughs> That's how it goes. Next up, we got. Uh, but anyways, next back to the casting, we got Grandin Rhodes as General Edmonds. Larry J. Blake as the motorcycle policeman. Charles Evans as Dr. Alberts. Harry Lauder as Cutting, Cantor's technician. Oh, uh, Cutting, Cutter's technician. That's a cool correction there. We also got Par- Paul Freeze as the aliens. He's actually an uncredited voice actor for all the alien species that we talked to in the movie, and that's pretty cool. And uh, finally, we got Ray Harryhausen. State- oh, <laughs> I actually believe this is a fun fact. Uh, Ray Harryhausen <laughs> stated in his biography that this is his least favorite, least favorite of his films. Right, uh, it, Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, you remember Harryhausen? He did the the claymation and produced the Clash yep. of the Titans. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. He was in about Spies Like Us, I think it mm-hmm. was, and um, Sin- Voyage of the Sinbad and the Voyage of the Seven Seas, and yep. a lot of that claymation I wonder, stuff. I wonder if he really actually just disliked this film, or he just hated working on it. <laughs> you know, that could be. Well, I case. mean, you compared to all of his other films, you look at it, some of the bombastic things he's done in other films. It, and then you kind of compare it to this, which didn't yeah. have that much claymation, and it was probably boring for him to do as far as, like, animating. Right, but this was also and... way before the other ones he did, so that's maybe true. he got better, his art got better as he went along. Yeah, it's one of those things where you look back and you hate the work you did. Yeah, you that's know, true. Much like right. our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, our podcast is great. Listen to them all, download them too. <laughs> Uh, by the way, Tyler, did you ever download a ball? <laughs> like, no, no. I'm on it, I swear. I listen to this podcast too, right? Um... <laughs> So let's go and talk about this movie a little bit um, without going scene by scene. Basically, uh, Earth is launching, I guess, would you call them satellites? Rockets? Um, man, they're, yeah, they're, they're uh, like rockets. Observatories? Observatory rockets, but they did they don't really send back much data because right. they, they, well, they don't, don't really, send back any data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're getting destroyed. That's why. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think I might pull back a little bit further, but like, you know, they're, they're having basically a news report at the very beginning of the film about how people are sighting UFOs basically across the world and they end up getting to identify them. And then also, then we go cut to the scene where we actually see Hugh Marlowe as Dr. Russell A. Marvin talking on his uh, recording device that he is now sending unmanned drones, basically unmanned rockets to um, record data of the space outside of Earth in space and the sun and its uninhibited radiation and all those kind of things to try and get those kind of 
um, get that data he needs for space travel in the future. Um, but he's running his stumbling blocks as as we detail later in the film. He's not getting the data from the rockets as soon as he sends them off. Right, because they're getting destroyed. Right. Yes, they're getting destroyed. They were, but they were being mistaken for right. weapons, um, and they're 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 getting ready to launch the twelfth one. I do believe. Right. Is that right? It's the eleventh. It's the eleventh rocket they launched that day. Where the general comes up, and then the 12th rocket the next day. Right. Uh, yeah. So you see Marlo, or not Marlo, I said Marlo that's driving the. With, yeah, he, well, Marlo, the woman's driving the car. It, jo- Joanne's driving, and Marlo is re- recording on his uh, voice recording. The dictaphone or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The pre boom box of definitely just like this thing takes up his entire chest, and it, how does it even fit in the car? And he's recording on it on the road. Right. <laughs> it's amazing that we can just pull up our phones and, that fit right in our pocket, and we can do the same thing. Exactly. No. At higher quality, even. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And this is where you see the. the the, the great visual of the flying saucers coming behind them in the, <laughs> the back class of the, the yeah. car. And then it flies over the top of them in the front of them. You see them in the front, you know what I mean? And, and so they, they keep traveling. They get to the, I, what do you call it, the lab, the observatory, the, whatever you the, want to call the, it. Uh, uh, it's the Skyhook Operations Center, or right. whatever they call it, the Ford Operating Base of Skyhook Operations. Right. And, uh, and this is where her dad works, correct? Yeah. Uh, no, her dad is a her dad is a general who is uh, basically doing operations for the U.S. for the U.S. Army, and he visited there to tell them that he's he's found the remains of their last rocket. Oh, okay, yeah, but he's just, he's there as just a, a almost a consultation capacity of just happening. He happened to stumble by and actually, you know, and does he say, "Oh, by the way, we got married"? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the way, we got they happened to got married the night before, which doesn't really factor <laughs> in the plot, but it is kind of a fun little note of just. Yeah, the good part is the the general the the woman's father is completely fine with it. Even being yeah, told, like, oh hey, awesome! <laughs> oh, you had a wedding. You didn't invite me or anything. Thanks. <laughs> I'm happy for you too. He's right. being sarcastic with the whole movie. We just don't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> so from here, we go to uh, well. Back at the base, the general actually tries to stop the missile launch, but they can't because they would have to send it off. Yeah. And so, uh, so against the general's objections, they do launch the rocket, and they have some limited radio contact for it for a while. But then that's when they head to the uh, to the to their house to discuss the fact that all these rockets have gone missing, mm-hmm. effectively. Yeah. And it's it's kind of ridiculous and funny to me to think about the idea that. Uh, Dr. Russell Marvin could launch 10 rockets and lose contact with all of them, and he still gets approved to continue the operation. <laughs> right. Oh, I know, right? How much money was wasted? Oh, just, millions say that, like, just millions of that's dollars. That's what say later in the film. That, like, that operation costs millions of dollars. Millions of taxpayer dollars. U.S. government blown assets. Up. In space, you know, and I'm all for you know mocking the government for wasting money, but that is that is a, that is a little much even for the U.S. government. <laughs> going to raise some eyebrows. Someone's getting so, tired. So go ahead, Kyle. You're doing a good job. I know you're the big sci-fi fan of this whole and, group, and I, and I probably watched it most recently out of all of us because I watched it on the way here to record this today. Well, um, Terrence probably beat you. I, I watched it. Oh last yeah, you night. watched it moments you, ago. You still have watched it sooner than I have because oh, I watched yes. it super early By this morning of a few hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. it was the first one I watched of the, yeah. the, the, the three. But, but anyways, uh, back to the plot. The general informs Dr. Russell Marvin that um, essentially they, he has found the remains of several of his rockets, I believe six of them, and he believes all the other four have been lost at sea. And um, after the general informs Dr. Marvin that he lost all these rockets, he then gets information from a uh, telegram that he has lost contact with the 11th rocket too. And he's greatly confused by this because that's obviously not supposed to happen. These are... These are observatory drones basically meant to stay in the uh, atmosphere for a very long time and they're just losing contact immediately. So they um, go outside and have the dinner for the night and continue discussing how they're utterly confused and in the sky they see two bright white orbs in the sky and dismiss it as Aurora Borealis effects. Yeah, they were like, oh, it's similar to Aurora Borealis. We're so used to it. We don't even notice anymore. I was like, like, wow, just really quick the complacency, okay? The complacency (laughs) of it is actually very surprising and it's actually kind of interesting in the film because like it makes... It doesn't make sense for like UFOs just to start appearing. This movie only makes sense if UFOs have been a problem in this society for years at this point. Right. Because it just doesn't make sense for it's just like, oh, UFOs. <laughs> and it totally, just happened, but we can totally yeah, explain this. Yeah, we can totally explain <laughs> this and dismiss it in general. But in general, it makes more sense of like, oh, the whole world has been doing feeling UFO sightings for at least the past few months to this point. Then it makes a little more sense. When did Roswell happen? Do we know? Do you remember? Roswell, New Mexico. Is it 40? I believe that was like 51. If not, I know. So this, this was pretty shortly before this film came out then, right? Yeah, yeah. So, there, I mean, like, you know, I mean, society has familiarity with the uh, 
the whole incident of Roswell in Mexico and like that. Um, I would imagine but, this movie was trying to capitalize on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like, you know, there's the whole zeitgeist of zombies we had, you know, not so long ago. Yeah. And then it's the same with UFOs. Yeah. You know, after Roswell, there was a huge zeitgeist of just uh, sort of sci-fi and, like, UFOs and stuff. Speaking of which, I did want to mention, like, I feel like the the UFO in this is, or just kind of UFOs in general during this sort of sci-fi time period were some of the most uninspired designs because it was literally just a flying saucer. <laughs> right. And then, like, and then you really don't see sort of, like, re- those really cool aspects of designs till later. I mean, you, there are other older sci-fi films that have cool ship designs, but nine times out of ten, it's just like, okay, here's a saucer. And I, yeah. I, it, just, it just feels very, like, But, Grant, like, they, were, they were the first ones to do it in the first place, so they set the kind of <laughs> the expectations of flying saucers. Yeah. And actually looking up right now, the, um, the Roswell, interesting... The, Wal- the Roswell, New Mexico incident actually occurred in 1947. I thought it was 40, yeah. Yeah, 47. And Earth vs. Flying Saucers came out in 1956, if yeah. I'm correct. So they had a whole nine-year lead of time. So the familiarity with um, unidentified flying objects and even the idea of alien life is a bit more common by the time that would be released. And the idea of, like, this is one of the first films that really capitalized on that fear or zeitgeist, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were familiar with it. And so, anyways, they, they disregard these giant white orbs in the sky as just, like, Aurora Borealis effects or, like, static electricity in the air that causes these white orbs. And then we go on and they enjoy their dinner for the night and move on to the next scene where they are launching a 12th rocket on the very next day. And they run into a, a snafu as an identified flying object appears above the skyhook base. And at first, the um, the... The guards on patrol dismiss it as theatrics or like playing a prank or something like that. But then it becomes quickly serious that the situation has escalated to a violent portion as the flying saucer goes in and lands on the base. And the military presents to fire on it with artillery shells and and you know, rifles and all those other kind of things. And are quickly just dispatched and destroyed by the alien <laughs> statue monsters almost instantaneously. Yeah, the, um, the whole base. And yeah, the whole base is absolutely torn. Uh, except under. for the um, uh, the Marvins. Ex- except except for this, yeah, Joanne, um, Car- Carol, and Russell Marvin both survive an underground bunker basically, and are recording their last uh, <laughs> wills and deeds, and um, are utterly confused with the situation because they don't know exactly what happened either. They just heard identify a fine object, and then all of a sudden everything basically goes dark in a way of just like the world was, you know, for all they know, the whole world is destroyed right then. <laughs> so. Um, Russell and Carol Marvin are both locked under the bunker, hoping to be rescued. Unclear of what will happen in the future, and the generators and um, Russell is recording basically, essentially almost a last will and testament, even if he doesn't know it. Uh, that you know, this is the data that we found right before up fell. This unif- un- unidentified flying object came into our airspace and destroyed our base, and this is him signing off. And as he does that, the generators in the underground bunker, the, in- the underground bunker, fail. And the tape recording slows down, and when the tape recording slows down, it reveals that they had accidentally recorded the U- the first UFO appearance when they were driving the car, and that reveals that it slowed down and actually had a recorded message inside of it that later tells him that the aliens had planned to meet with him personally at the UFO base the day that he was attacked. And- uh, which I think is highlighted um, when the the aliens and the flying saucer are talking to the the major. Yes, um, but let's discuss how they talk to him. Yes, because yeah. I thought that was really cool how they did that too. The white orb of translating device and right. basically <laughs> speaking directly to the minds of each other, mm-hmm. and uh, very interesting um, effects overall. And uh, interesting scientific ideas that don't get explored well enough today. I don't think of how you know aliens would try to contact humanity and, and vice versa. I, I like the fact that they, you know, just did a little extra to explain how we're communicating because uh, there's too many times in sci-fi where there's communication going on you know between you know completely different alien species and us and we're just like how how is this happening yeah and, and it's not and, explained and, and the best films are the ones that actually do a great job of addressing that specific thing like i think like movies like arrival where they had the whole deal of going through sign language and other yep. kind of factors mm-hmm. trying to establish communication really movie. um makes it a great movie in that kind of case so whereas uh more films that just kind of like dismissively say like they have like universal translators or any yeah. other kind of um, uh, convenient scientific nonsense um, kind of lose a little bit of the science fiction edge to them a little bit because yeah. it's just it's uh, it's it's too easy 
um, in another way of saying. But uh, but uh, but you got to remember the reason that they know that they saw a flying saucer is because it actually recorded the sound of the spaceship when he was dictaphoning in the in his car. Remember that's yeah. why yep. they're the the sound or whatever. And yeah, and it wasn't until the generator slowed down right. that it then revealed that it was actually a extremely a highly compressed message in that audio recording that only after the reel was slowed down tremendously it was able to reveal that he was actually a communication device to it was actually a, a, a message right to, which right. is interesting because that's an actual thing hiding a encrypted of, messages yeah, and, and, exactly amongst like frequencies and stuff well it's like it's like you can slow down or speed up a, a certain frequency well it's like actually they always message. say like if you go shopping the music they're playing, there's encrypted messages of, hey, buy this, this is on sale. You know, I mean, the, the actually subliminal messages are in the music, too, they say. So, um, mm. so I mean, they play it all backwards, and then it's just all, you know, yeah. <laughs> chanting. <laughs> so, there, I thought that was a cool scene, though, when the, the was it the major, uh, where they show his brain? Remember whether it's oh, yeah, the brain, yeah, brain, yeah, yeah, yeah. brain glue glows up? I thought mm-hmm. that was really cool, too. Yeah. And uh, the general was actually the uh, the other unofficial survivor of the attack, but they don't know that yet, because he is abducted by the aliens. Hey, can I just terrible. say, I love the alien's voice in this. And truly is incredible. Yeah, especially in the recording devices. Right. Having that, yeah, uh, just, it was like, it's clear that aliens are struggling to communicate on this primitive idea of communication, basically. That well, I think the whole, I, like, their whole sort of perception of Earth, they sort of over, uh, are underestimated, no, 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 uh, they overestimated how Earth was in general, because they thought the satellites were, like, an Earth defense system, and they're like, no, that's not. And then, like, their actual weapons, they're like, oh, yeah, no, they call it primitive and all this other stuff. So, like, they're, they're definitely looking on a high horse uh, as they're talking. But I, but I really remember, what I really liked and I remember is they're like, why don't you just, because when, they, when they take um, Marlo and, uh, what's her name, uh, the lady's name? Carol. Carol. In the movie. When they, when they take them to the spaceship or whatever, remember, and they're like, well, this is only happening in between seconds. Yeah. And um, they're like, well, why don't you just take Earth by force? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. They're like, that's not how we do it. You know what I mean? That's an interesting thing I think they addressed, which, you know, it's, it's, it's true. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, no, if we attacked, it's just, it'd be a huge hassle. There's only a handful of us, and we just don't want all of that to happen. Right. <laughs> it's a huge hassle. Yeah, yeah. Basically, we're going to destroy you from within. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought that was very it's interesting. Like, why don't you take the force? Like, listen, dude, it'd, just be, it'd be easier for all of us if you just lay down. We'll win. But, <laughs> so they, they say what they say. He's like, well, it's going to take me several several years or whatever to get all these pieces together. And he's like, hey, you got 57 days or whatever. For the, I think it was two uh, lunar days, actually, to get right. them set up. So, yeah, to get up um, to all their whole uh, Washington conference. To have but I think it wasn't a total of 57 days, though? Yeah, yeah. The lunar cycles. I think it was lunar cycles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're that like, we got 57 lot. days. Because that's when they're like, that's we got to come. We're going to meet up with uh, the world leaders. So they're like, gather much. the world leaders. You guys have 57 days. Right. And he's like, you know, they're like, 57 days to come up with this weapon? That's almost impossible. You know what I mean? So that is hilarious. When I heard lunar cycles, I didn't think of the actual the span moon. of the moon. Right. I just thought like three days. <laughs> so I well, ladies and gentlemen, we do have the young one. <laughs> but also, why would aliens know what the lunar cycle is? <laughs> Well, because you got to remember, they absorbed all the information from, from the guy's major. brain. From, and yeah. at this point, I believe the cop also. Uh, so they have two people that they've sort of mm-hmm. pulled information from. So they, they have a good chunk of uh, yeah, they have things a, to you know the, the basics. Stuff off of. yeah, yeah, the basics of life, the facts of life. Which is interesting <laughs> because, like, all of this information, especially in the beginning when they're showcasing like their knowledge of Earth, which is just from the major. Which means the major was a very, very knowledgeable person. Well, he's probably got all this top secret information too, which is what I thought was interesting that they chose him too, because here's a guy that's probably got a higher command and he's got access to more top secret information for the government too. Which I thought, hey, if you're going to go steal information, you might as well take somebody that has the knowledge of it all. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, imagine if he wasn't a guy who watched sports though, and they asked the question, "Who was the winner of the World Series?" Uh, they did. They yeah, said. Yeah. They remember, they asked well, they him. Yeah, they they say, did. I'm saying, imagine the most if the major, yeah. the major, yeah. major like, didn't Yankees. know they, who won yeah. the World Series. They, they didn't the ask any questions or make any knowledge that I felt like would have been outside of what the general would have known. Yeah, exactly. For, for his era and his time, actually, like everything they, everything that the, everything that the aliens know from him makes sense for the general to actually know. Oh himself. yeah, for sure. So right. that's a, a very good attention to detail they had for him. So I appreciate that a lot. But um, yeah. Um, 
basically when they get destroyed from that <laughs> we we advance a little further in the plot right, 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 right. <laughs> but going back further they eventually the the American government digs out both the both the doctors and uh the Dr. Russell Marvin and Carol Marvin and then in, in basically interrogate them based on like hey what in the world happened because we do understand we just saw like this entire base got destroyed and people were talking about UFOs and Dr. Marvin explains that like he needs he understands that he needed to make contact with him and that sorry about the blank space right there <laughs> well, <laughs> it looked like he was really struggling there for a second really struggling uh, what are the words again you have <laughs> to slow down the Kyle podcast just went through a lunar you'll, cycle you'll see all of exactly. what you'll hear all of what he said my brain activated this lunar cycle and I stopped <laughs> three seconds but anyways the, the doctor asserts that the only way to hopefully um, breach some kind of peace would be to, for him to contact them directly and actually set up that meeting that he didn't know he needed in the first place so he requests the radio be brought to his room that he's staying in and tries to contact the aliens again and the aliens immediately basically respond and say hey listen you need to get here tomorrow at this random beach and the government tries to stop him but basically he fights his way through it and um, runs away with his wife and himself and the cops chase after him and another uh, military uh, advisor comes after him and four people end up getting to the point where they get to the flying saucer and the aliens demand like no all of you come in here or you die the aliens have a very uh, <laughs> direct way of saying, yeah, very, very direct. Yes, yeah. very confrontational way of just saying, "You will do this now." You are, you know, it's very clear that if if the world surrendered to the aliens, it would not be a good thing for humanity. <laughs> you know, it's very clear that they're not. Uh, you know, they wouldn't be great leaders. Well, have humanity's best interest in mind for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, and there could be a part of you thinking like, you know, aliens came out, came, came to me like, hey, we have insanely advanced technology. We're even living as slightly. Yes, kind of well, like that kind of reminds me of Independence Day, where they're all like wanted to throw a party on top of like the oh, buildings yeah, in the yeah, organ, and they just come over with that laser, like, just, come here, you know, just destroy them all. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. what, what I find interesting about the whole thing is, um, they do mention why they're at Earth, which is uh, didn't they flee their own? Their own yes, planet? they they had uh, a disintegrated solar system or something like that. Exactly. So, yeah. so basically, they're refugees of their own planet looking for another planet to take over and live at. So yeah. I, I think but that's an interesting thing. It's also clear that they do this a little bit like a cycle because they said they've actually encountered other solar systems before. Mm-hmm. So they definitely seem to be kind of the idea of like... Um, and it seems like those flying saucers are a very limited number. So it almost sounds like a like a... Potentially, like a race of like maybe only a few hundred aliens and a few hundred spaceships. Very like nomadic, that, sort of. Yeah, very nomadic, species. and they're just just destroying plants for all their resources and moving from one planet to another as an extreme, you know, nomad or hunter gatherer, basically that doesn't have any singular home anymore. And lead me to believe that, like, if anything, they probably destroyed their own solar system and are just <laughs> yeah. so, gone. So once it takes them four up into the spaceship, so we can progress the story. Um, the general's up there, and they're like, are you going to release him? They said, well, we're not going to release him until after you give us what we want, right? Is yeah. that right? Or, or he's going to die, basically. If we don't mm. bring him back within the 57 days or 54 days, whatever it was, then he's going to die. So now you have uh, the Marlowe and, and whatever her name is. I always forget her name. <laughs> yeah, it's Karen. Carol. 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 Carol you know, they, they go back, and they start relaying the information to whoever they need to relay the information to. They're like, they're not going to believe us. So this is where, is this where they blow up the ship? in like the Baltic Sea or whatever and they say you give them these coordinates and say that this was done by us and they'll believe you because they're going to be looking for the wreckage or whatever exactly so yeah basically yeah, they they make it a show of dominance basically just say I'm going to destroy this random ship as proof of our intent that we will ensue violence if you don't and they say well like 54 men were on board or 500 no it was 300 something okay some 300 men one of the military advisors just takes note of that like there must have been over 300 men on that ship right which is very realistic because it is a functioning battleship in 1956 or whatever right and so yeah it's you know, it's very much showing that they are they're these aliens are not messing around to any degree. There's no idea of actual getting peace. There is just surrender, and that is your only option. And uh, if you don't surrender, it would just be worse off for you. That's their that's their only offer. <laughs> that's, right. That's their only so Marlo and Carol um, go to relay this information to whoever they need to relay it to. Yes. And, and the race to make the weapon. Right. So how did they come up? Just anybody has to, How so, did they decide to make this weapon? Does anybody remember? They, 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 in the very beginning, when they first attacked the aliens, they immediately recognized, which I thought was interesting. That was an, another thing where we were talking about, that's an interesting reaction. It's like they immediately recognized the technology and they were like, it's an electric magnetic field. Right. Like, yeah. like how do you know that? But um, 
that that's sort of when they come down to the point of like uh, trying to create a weapon to, to fight these things. So they had seen the technology, so they had kind of figured it out apparently, and then so it was making a weapon to combat. Yeah, or at the very least, I feel like they they recognize the aliens' own like the idea of their weapons, and then recognize that could also be a vulnerability to them. Basically, like an electromagnetic electromagnetic sonic emitter, basically is my exactly, idea. and that was going to be the idea of the the basis of their counter weapon they made, and they um, they figured it out. Yeah, <laughs> well, in fifty seven days, which is incredible uh, when you consider like even the resources of the time, or even now. Oh yeah, it'd be an incredible struggle to develop a weapon of that kind of magnitude. That's not well, so much it wasn't like figuring it out, but it's the fact that they were able. to to a figure it out and then create and then employ said weapons. Well, I was gonna say, didn't they test out with only a few days left or something? And they they went to that desert and blew up the. Uh, yes. What was it? What they blow up? The tank or something? I can't remember exactly what they blew up. I remember seeing it, but I can't remember. I remember the first real successful test. They had the the hollowed out the hollowed out metal ball. Right. That's what they used. They hit it with a ray, and then it turned into basically a, a white ball of plasma. Then it exploded and went down. And that's that's when they knew that they could use that weapon against the aliens effectively. So then, and yeah, I think we're in the final days of the lunar cycle, as they call it. <laughs> and uh, then they basically get ready to go to war. And I believe they um, attack one particular ship out in the middle of nowhere, like you're saying that same mission. Right. Hazy at the ending right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, so now they have, I forget, how many did they make? They made several, though, remember? Because they're like, hey, we got an attack, a saucer here, so they're driving across town or whatever, remember? The, yeah. Uh, uh, at the capital or whatever. I don't think they ever got specific numbers, but they only had a few truckloads. Of, like, uh, they have, like, on, on, the, on the back of truck beds, they had these basically giant, giant satellite ray guns. Mm-hmm. This is like the old cable, cable yeah, 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 yeah. satellites or whatever. You know, this parking lot full of different equipment that we found and then put in the film. <laughs> <laughs> right, so they start, they start destroying the... Uh, Aliens in Washington D.C. Right, right, and uh, yeah, and then they have to reach the whole conflict of actually knocking down flying saucers and having them, you know, fall into buildings and be this huge um, vista spectacle. I always like when like like you see the flying saucer and and you see the crowds of people running, ah, (laughs) running for baseball fields and all that. I thought it was awesome, (laughs) Uh, but then you see them destroy and then they crash and burn down or whatever. So. Um, Kyle, we're almost to the, the end of the film. Go ahead and take it away. What happens for the, the end of the film? Um, well, really, the ending uh, is left on a bit of a uh, an unknown, as it will, as a, you know, if there's a little bit of like an all is lost mode of like thinking they might, the humanity might get defeated, but then the um, the cavalry basically comes in with a uh, several trucks with these sonic emitter, electric magnetic emitters that... that Alien guns. <laughs> and then knock out a all the aliens there. And then it culminates with a giant flying saucer that actually crashes into, I believe it's, was it the, was it the White House or the Washington Monument or something like that? It was the White House. Yeah. Or the Pentagon. Impor- it was something like that. An important U.S. monument that we all <laughs> We're good. We're film watchers. <laughs> and um, it's then revealed that they have won that battle. And um, presumably that that conflict is also going to be um, they they have the action of winning this particular battle with the world basically where the humanity triumphs. But see, so you, you never you never know from the alien simply was that all the alien ships was that all they had? It's never clear. Yeah, it, it, it it's clear they haven't. It's not. It's not clear that they won a war, but it is clear that they've won this particular day and successfully defended themselves. But it's not necessarily the, you know, it, it is a way of thinking of the end of the world is possibly still to come as more aliens could arrive and 200 like, years later. And or, the, the, the end of the movie is like, but not today. Not <laughs> no, they're today. on a yeah. beach or whatever. So they go to the, yeah, they go to the beach. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so it is a kind of a story of persevering in the in the in the face of like apocalyptic Adversity. struggles. Yeah, <laughs> right. Which is not relatable at all today. So basically, basically <laughs> well, I mean, in, in, hey, in the uh, in the generation of uh, random sequels, it'd be a great time to bring this back <laughs> or remake it <laughs> or remake, remake it. it or yeah or even a, yeah a sequel idea was also right. Crazy. And you could always kind of go back and just you know. If, so we'll go ahead and talk about some of the facts I found in this movie. Um, uh, some special interesting stuff. Uh, the science fiction movie was suggested by the 1953 nonfiction book Flying Saucers from Outer Space by retired U.S. Marine Corps Major Donald E. Kehoe, which um, Terrence had talked about, who believed that certain aerial phenomena were interplanary in design. Uh, one of the scenes of a saucer attacking jets is actually based on footage of an airshow crash. Oh, there's actually a lot of scenes in this movie that are uh, like so. The explosion is uh, from that's an actual explosion of uh, a ship, and that was taken in World War Two. Two, I think. Yeah, um, 
that might so, yeah, have been there, there's a lot of different Warner. footage yeah. in in this movie that uh, is actual footage, which I found a little grim. Um, a little grim, but also effective. You know, yeah, like, and exactly. That's, yeah. that, that's common it's, for that. It is common. Well, especially it, if it's stock footage, you ain't got to pay a lot for it either. Yeah, it's, for it's, that it's, it's, uh, it's a great freeze, savings right? of just like, hey, let's actually just have the footage from real. So the supposed satellite launches are actually stock footage of the Viking rockets, high altitude probes that were the predecessors of the Vanguard, intended to be the first satellite launcher. The later shots of rockets crashing and takeoff are really German V2s, since none of the v- first V12 Vikings ever failed. Ironically, the 13th Viking, now called Vanguard, blew up on the launch pad just like in the movie. Oh, wow. The scene of a destroyer blowing up is actually stock footage of sinking of HMS Barnham, which occurred on November 25th, 1941. To not upset the British public, the Royal Navy decided to withhold an announcement until later. However, in late November 1941, a Scottish medium, Helen Duncan, who had heard of the sinking through a friend, disclosed the sinking during a seance. She was eventually tried under the British Witchcraft Act, the last person before it was repealed. Hmm. Columbia's publicity department created publicity stills using the cut and paste techniques. The resulting stills of the flying saucers were vastly inferior to the special effects of the film itself. In fact, one of the most more infamous stills shows Hugh Marlowe and Joan Taylor standing on top of the water in the middle of the Potomac River. Hmm. Fans of Disneyland might recognize the voice of the narrator and of the alien as actor Paul Fries, who provided or who provides the voice of the ghostly host for the Haunted Mansion ride. Fries also was a voice for many cartoon characters for Disney, as well as for the Rocky and Bullwinkle show in 1959. A legend in the field. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, Bernard Gordon was one of the screenwriters, but was originally credited as Raymond T. Marcus because of the Hollywood blacklist. For the 2008 DVD release, his real name was restored to the credits, and he was moved from second billing to top billing over George Worlington Yates. Hmm. Whilst Dr. Marvin, his wife, the major, and the police officer are being transported in a saucer, a large view screen has displayed their movement away from Earth. One of the shots displayed is of Earth and the moon with a haze-like fog. This shot is taken from the opening credits of The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951. Actor Harry Lauder, who played the generator operator uh, in Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, also played the tank soldier in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Then uh, that Klaatu handed the damaged device to that would have allowed the president to study life on other planets. The footage of the bomber exploding is actually World War II footage of a B-29 flying fortress. Uh, this was the last movie in which Ray Harryhausen used stop motion to create collapsing buildings. He said it was too much work. Mm. The saucer shooting down a plane, real footage from an airship crest, was also used in closing credits of the movie Fury in 2014 under the billing of director of photography Roman Vazlanov. Tim Burton, a huge Ray Harryhausen fan, recreated the destruction of Washington as a tribute in his movie Mars Attacks in 1996. That was a great movie, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the buildings struck by uh, crashing flying saucers in Union, is Union Station, Washington's main train station. This may have inspired by a 1953 accident when a runway passenger train smashed into the station concourse. Dr. Marvin wants the uh, biggest generator Shindekti has. General Electric built its generators in Shindekti. Uh, the car that Dr. Marvin and his wife drive is 1955 Mercury. The location for the home barbecue scene and sporadic neighborhood shots during the final attack were filmed on Morning Glory Circle, also known as Blondie Street, a very popular outdoor set film uh, for television on the Columbia Warner backlot. It was a major location for Leave it to Beaver, Bewitched, The Partridge Family, American Beauty, Pleasantville, which was another great movie, Fantastic and film. countless others. The death ray used by the saucers was an in-camera effect using Roman candles. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Fireworks! That's... Uh, when it works, it works. That's awesome, right? <laughs> Parts of the Hyperion Treatment Plant, later named the Hyperion Water Reclamation Plant, adjacent to Dockweller State Beach in Los Angeles, were used as the movie's headquarters. It was the sound of the sewage disposal plant's disintegration tanks that was used as the sound of the alien craft. Three aluminum flying saucer models are, and one made from wood were actually made by Ray Harryhausen's father. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. Several actors in this movie appeared in other Schneier, Harry, Housen films. Joan Taylor is a secretary and om- almost a doctor in 20 Million Miles to Earth. That Probably got to see that one. That's got a lot of people in this. Yeah, we've, we've seen a lot of uh, the crossovers from that. A lot of overlap of actors yeah, 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 and talent. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, John Zarimbia is a scientist in both films. Thomas Brown Henry plays a general in both. And Donald Cruss plays a scientist in It Came From Beneath the Sea in 1955 and A Military Man Here. Unusual for a 50 sci-fi movie, the saucers make their first appearance at the very beginning of the movie, menacing several commercial military planes. They appear during the narration and before the credits. 
the flying saucers were suspended on piano wires, practically invisible except against a background of clouds. For these, Harryhausen had to paint the wires out uh, frame by frame. Oh man, I bet that was rough. Some tedious yeah. work there for sure. There's a lot of like, especially with with older films and and when it comes to these effects, like not not to discredit now in the special effects, it's just as tedious, but sort of on a different scale. But like you know, uh, back in the day, you get these tedious effects with so little output almost. But you know what? I I kind of almost sometimes prefer that the like the stop motion. Oh, for sure. Effects. A lot of people even now still prefer practical effects over special effects. Right. Yeah, they're still mainly done today. A lot of done today, but like simply in like keying out assets now had to be done through extremely tedious elbow grease of work to actually manually go out and, for, and delete those kind of assets where now you usually have computer algorithms to kind of eliminate those factors so it's a, yeah. lot, a lot smoother today which is a lot better overall um, but you know it's still got a respect for the people who put in that work right. uh, Ray Harry Housen may have borrowed an effect from George Powell's The War of the Worlds from 1953 in both movies the military weapons can't penetrate the invaders protection screens but the invaders have no trouble shooting out from them also in both, when the alien race hit a person or vehicle, the ve- the uh, attacked individual blurs, turns white, and then disappears. <laughs> um, on the satellite diagram shown at the beginning of the scene at General Henley's residence, or Henley's residence, the solar cells are called silicone wafers. The words should be silicon, and the gamma ray counter misspells gamma. So I thought that was funny too. Huh. As part of the promotional campaign, cinema managers were encouraged to offer customers insurance against alien invasion. Insurance certificates can be issued when Patreon buys tickets, announced the Columbia's campaign book. <laughs> can you imagine? Excellent. Excellent. I wish I did stuff like that today. I wish I right? wish you could find one. Can you imagine having one of those for the studio here? Uh, an actual insurance certificate to hang in? That'd be cool <laughs> That'd be if somebody fantastic. could find one. Hey, I'm proud uh, for it. Right. right? Uh, when Carol Mel Marvin, uh, or sorry, Carol uh, Marvin is invited to test the alien language translator, she recites, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the general rain from heaven into the microphone. Although someone identifies the source of Shakespeare, a moment later the play is not named. The lines are from The Merchant of Venice, Act 4, Scene 1. It is the beginning of Portia's most famous speech in the play, breaking, uh, speaking to the plaintiff, Shylock, while she is disguised as a young male doctor of law named Balthazar. And yes, the opening credits, the characters and incidents portrayed, and the names used here are fictitious in any similarity to the name, characters, or history or of our history of any person is entirely accidental and unintentional. That's what they want you to think. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, fellas, we'll start with Kyle, then we'll go to Terrence. What right. do you think of this movie? Um, overall, I feel like it's got a little bit of a, a slower pace to it, and it's maybe not like the greatest watch nowadays, but it's still great to appreciate for what it's set up and like the movies it led to afterwards. And I think it's a great you know forefather of great science fiction movies to now, so you can appreciate it for that, and it's still a fun watch as it is right now going forward. So I enjoyed it very much. I feel like this is a watch for for those who sort of appreciate, you know, older sci-fi films. I think it definitely falls right in line with, uh, you know, a lot of other older sci-fi films of this time. Um, so if this is your bag, this is definitely... And if you haven't, for some reason, seen it, then definitely it's a watch. Um, if you have interest in older sci-fi and it's, it's sort of a new interest for you, definitely a watch. Um, I feel it could be a bit harder for someone who's not particularly excited about sci-fi especially because this one is slower paced i mean maybe some people are not excited about sci-fi but they like the action that comes with it this probably isn't the movie um because besides for like some you know the time in the beginning when they first encounter the aliens and like the end and then maybe some scenes in between there's not too much action in this particular film um but i i enjoyed it um i do like older sci-fi films um, it, it is slower paced, and it did. There was a couple times where it had trouble keeping my attention, but uh, overall, I, I enjoyed the movie. Right, and I would have liked to have seen it in black and white. Um, we watched the colorized version yeah. that I have. Um, so, um, but I thought the colors they did it was very vibrant. Um, it looked really good. The HD quality that we had uh, that that I have. Um, it looked really crisp. It looked it looked great. Yeah, that's really just a credit to like modern filmmaking now. How much we can actually digitally restore a lot of these movies, right? And the colorization effects are just honestly incredibly spot on. I don't know how they did the um, work of digitally recoloring all these black and white scenes, or if they had a traditional production stills or pictures or what. But uh, it is some incredibly impressive work. Really, right? And this one looks particularly well because there are certain movies that do get. There are black and white that do move into uh, being colorized, and you can sort of tell the uh, the overuse of makeup that was used 
in particular, very uh, much older films in the black and white industry because they did have to overuse makeup to insinuate certain features. Yeah, yeah they had the, in black and white, so yeah. you don't really notice it in, in in this particular movie. Yeah, they they didn't like they didn't just like restore how it looked on the film like in color. They kind of like they made it look like it was um, essentially filmed today with modern cameras in a, in a very realistic way. You know, because you don't want to have that over makeup yeah. look or something like that, or something that reveals the seams of the film. Essentially, exactly. you don't want something like that. So, really and, and this is right in line with um, uh, uh, one of our previous episodes that we covered. Uh, once again, it was uh, colorized, but or we watched the colorized version, but there's black and white available, um, and that was um, uh, the fly. Yeah, because uh, that that one we watched the color version, but there is a black and white version. No, there's no, not. not. There isn't. No, there's no. Yeah, the 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 fly. I thought we, I thought I saw within the list that there was a black no, and white. Well, that's version. the the sequel and the one after it. There. Oh, yeah. Okay. Remember from the past podcast that's we did right. that we uh, mentioned that the, uh, the it was never actually filmed in People black and white. People think they they call it the uh, was Mandela, that Mandela effect yeah. that there never was. So yes, yeah, so alternative. So I, 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 I saw. Right. The, yep, I saw the black and white. I saw uh, <laughs> uh, the Berenstain Bears. <laughs> <laughs> saw that Sinbad. T- I saw know, Sinbad in the. Yeah. I still say I saw that movie. I don't care what anybody says. Well, yeah, uh, for me, um, and also I think uh, I love uh, Harry Housen's work. Uh, Clash of the Titans is still one of my favorite movies, um, just for the stop animation and everything that he did. You you see him with his little uh, little claymation people, and he, you know, just the the how intense it would be just to move them just a, a little bit and film yeah. that how, shot how after shot that after, after shot and here's yeah. what's interesting is like that in particular has not changed like claymation is still and and sort of that sort of a type it's still done the same way just smoother right. better materials and better yeah, exactly. and stuff. but like the the fundamentals are still very much exactly the same it's still right the painstaking of and moving things yeah just right but back then it was probably slowly. just the one guy going to move in a piece coming back like go <laughs> yeah. back like I don't know, you know, it depends mm-hmm. on the budget. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think you've got our thoughts and feelings on this film. Um, and yes, uh, the next time we record, it will be our two-year anniversary, and we are going to be covering something that we have wanted to cover since the very beginning of the podcast. We will be covering Star Wars, something near and dear to the a new hope. Cast. So, yeah, if you <laughs> would like to record us uh, a, bur- a happy birthday message. Um, we will send us the email tragedycinema@gmail.com. We will incorporate it into the Star Wars birthday bash. Um, so, with that being said, though, I believe this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And Kyle, take it away. And cut. <laughs> <laughs>